Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Our sermon text for this morning is Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. 8, 20 through 9, 17. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do long to declare your praise and... Uh, We long to see your glory. We long to see you and all of your glory. We long to see your, your mercy, your patience, your wisdom, your justice, your beauty, your goodness, and your truth. And we pray, Father, that as we look at your word, we would see those things, that we would see you for who you are in all of your glory, and that that would impress itself upon our hearts, that we would go out from here people who have been changed by our encounter with you, the living God. And Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to those ends this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Why is it so hard to move on after failure? 
Maybe we get uh, weighed down by, by guilt, right? The, the, the guilt, the shame just eats us away inside. Or maybe we feel like nothing is going to change. It's not going to get any better. We failed once. We're just going to fail again. Why bother trying? Or maybe we still don't know the right way forward, right? We, we failed before, and we're not sure how to do any different. There may be kind of an emotional component, right, weighed down by guilt, uh, uh, and an aptitude component. I'm not sure I can do any better next time. And an educational component, I'm not sure how to do different next time. And so failure, especially moral failure, sometimes becomes a kind of a dead end, a, a cul-de-sac, right? Once we hit the end of the road, we're not sure where to go next or how to get there. So the question is, how, how do we move on? How do we move forward? Now, if it's difficult to, to move on after individual failure, uh, you can imagine the position that Noah was in. The human race had made a mess out of God's world. They filled the world not with the beauty of the image of the Father, but with violence and oppression and murder. They had spent their time destroying God's image, not multiplying it. In order to put a stop to this ruining of creation, God sent a flood to destroy humanity to hit the reset button on creation, as it were, to start over with Noah. Noah comes off the boat, Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, and all the animals with him on the boat. And here's the, the question that haunts us is, how do they move on? I mean, how, how do you make sure that history is not just going to repeat itself? How do you make sure that humanity is not going to ruin the earth all over again, fill it with violence all over again, and God is going to send a flood all over again? What's to stop the cycle from repeating itself endlessly? Well, our text this morning actually answers that question. And, and uh, certainly there, are, uh, there will be echoes, uh, echoes of the fall and echoes of judgment as we move forward in Scripture and in history, but nothing on this scale, right? The flood will be a once-for-all-time event. I want to look at this text uh, twice through this morning. First, I want to see how God in this text is dealing with the problem of moving on after the flood. And yet what God does here in the end is not enough. And, and of course, it was never meant to be enough. It's not the final piece of the story. God is here preparing the way, setting the stage for something much better to come in Jesus. And so the, the second, I want, to, I want us to look at the better thing that we have in Jesus. And we'll look at uh, the question, how do we move forward uh, in Christ and in light of who he is and what he has done? So first, how could Noah move forward? How does God ensure that history is not just going to repeat itself endlessly after the flood? Well, the first thing God does is he gives his promise. Uh, God's promise of patience. Uh, You see that in in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, uh, where God says... uh, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then that's repeated in various ways in chapter 9 as well in verses 11 and 15. God promises he will never again destroy the earth by way of flood. And this provides kind of the platform for moving on, doesn't it? The earth will remain. Uh, If it wasn't for this foundational promise and patience of God, there could be no moving forward after the flood. Uh, Now, the reason God makes this promise is is important. Uh, Notice again in verse 21, as I just read, God acknowledges that human beings 
have not changed. Uh, We're still sinful from the start. There is nothing in us that is different this time around. And so why make this promise? Well, verse 20, uh, in verse 20, the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is offer a burnt offering. The whole burnt offering, which is significant for two reasons. The, uh, like most Old Testament offerings, the whole burnt offering involved the shedding of blood. And scripture says in Leviticus 17.11 uh, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, by offering up any bloody offering, the idea of atonement is in view. That is the idea of of removing God's wrath in order to restore relationship. One life is offered up for the sins of another, that that the sins will be forgiven and the relationship will be restored. But the whole burnt offering, because it's wholly burnt up on the altar, is also uh, significant for another reason. It, It signifies that the worshiper is offering his whole self to God. And so Noah gets off the boat, and what is his first act as kind of the head of this new humanity, as the head of this new creation? He offers himself to God, his his whole self without reserve. And this act of of dedicating himself and all creation to God through this atoning sacrifice is pleasing to God. Uh, It's Noah as the, the great high priest over all creation, as it were, offering up this atoning sacrifice that pleases God and moves him to make this promise. Never again would he curse the ground. As long as the earth remains, so would its regular times and seasons. Now, the the sign of this promise comes in at the the end of our section, in in chapter 9, verses 12 to 17, the sign of the promise would be the rainbow. Uh, Now, there's much that could be said about the rainbow and the sort of the biblical nature of the sign. And and, um, Derek Kidner, one commentator, points out that it arises from the conjunction of sun and storm as of mercy and judgment. It's kind of a beautiful image as you think about it. Um, Some think that it's a picture of God hanging up his war bow, meaning his anger for sin has ceased. Uh, Franz Dielich, another commentator, says the rainbow represents the victory of the light of love over the fiery darkness of wrath. Originating from the effect of the sun upon a dark cloud, it typifies the willingness of the heavenly to penetrate the earthly. Stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both, and spanning the horizon, it points to the all-embracing universality of the divine mercy. So you look at this image, and it's just uh, replete with meaning and significance. But really, the point in the end is, is... rather simple. Uh, Like a wedding ring, uh, this sign would stand as a sign of God's covenant, assuring us that God would not forget his promises, that every time he sees this sign in the clouds, it will be a a reminder to God, as it were, uh, of his promises, and he will remain faithful. And so the promise This promise provides the stage for moving on. Never again will God destroy the earth. Never again will he wipe all creation out as he did in the flood. Next, God provides direction for humanity after the flood. Uh, In chapter 9, verses 1 and and 7, God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And uh, you'll recognize this perhaps as, as a reiteration of God's original command to humanity. God wants the earth filled with his image. So the first thing he says, they get off the boat and he says, okay, now, now go fill the earth. Go be fruitful. Go multiply. God's plan has not changed. Uh, his program remains the same. Fill the earth with his image. God wants his goodness, his beauty, his truth to fill the earth as we, his image bearers, move out into all the world. 
And, and while that's good, so there's this platform and this program, that's still not enough because it, it, remember why God stepped out in judgment in the first place. Rather than filling the earth with God's image, humanity had filled it with violence. What will happen when people turn violent again? We have God's promise of never destroying the whole earth again. Okay, so, so the nuclear option has been taken off the table. But, but what does that mean for those who are victims of, of that violence? What does it mean for the objects of oppression? What, is it, what does it mean for the earth that will be ruined by that violence? Are, is, are they just left to themselves? Is the world simply going to be ruined once again, and yet God's not going to step in and do anything about it? What, what's going to happen? If the shedding of blood is the original cause of the flood, the violence that issued forth in the shedding of blood, what is God going to do about the shedding of blood this time? And the answer is God gives his law. Uh, You'll notice in in chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, God explains how to deal with the shedding of blood, whether animal or human. First, God says it's okay to eat animal meat as long as you don't eat animal blood. Uh, The blood represents the life and the life belongs to God. And so there, there are limits to human beings' authority over creation. Uh, It really isn't clear whether human beings ate meat prior to this point. Uh, Abel was a shepherd after all. Why was he a shepherd? Uh, Perhaps for the wool, you might say, but maybe for the food, maybe for both. We don't know. So whether human beings ate meat before this point or not, it is here explicitly allowed. Human beings can eat uh, of the animals of the earth. And, of course, the timing couldn't be more important. As Noah gets off the boat, there's not a whole lot of vegetation to eat. It will take time to plant and water and grow and harvest. What else is available to him in the meantime except the animals? But second, God says it's not okay to shed human blood. Uh, The penalty, whether for man or beast, would be paying with your own life. Uh, Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Again, notice the logic. God made man in his own image. That's why this is so important. Human beings are precious to God because they were made in his image, or particularly, I should say, because they were made in his image. God wants his image to fill the earth. He wants his beauty and goodness and truth to be manifested everywhere. And so taking a human life, to take a human life is to attack that image. And that is so serious, so significant, the only way forward is to pay life for life. This, of course, is is the institution of the the death penalty in Scripture. But notice where it comes from. Not a place that devalues human life, but a place that values it so much that there is no price that can be paid for a human life but by a human life. Uh, There's no way to right that wrong. You can't undo murder, and you can't buy your way out of murder. That is a line so meaningful it cannot be uncrossed. Now, of course, these laws would not stop the shedding of blood. They would only mitigate it, right? These laws uh, did what laws could do. They provided a fence, a a guardrail, a boundary to try to keep human sin in check. God's law restrains sin in society, but it does not affect sin in the heart. And so what we have here is on the basis of Noah's sacrifice as the, the head and representative of all creation, God promises not to destroy the earth again by flood. He recommissions man to fill the earth with his image, and he creates laws to order society so that the shedding of blood will not again become the problem that it was before the flood. And by these means, creation is allowed to to go on. And yet it's not enough, and it was never meant to be. God promises to hold off temporal judgment for a time, 
But final judgment is still to come. God recommissions humanity to to fill the earth with with his image, but human beings are still sinful, which means that image is still marred. God creates laws to order society and restrain sin, but the human heart is left untouched. Sin remains. And we will quickly see sin kind of re-enter, as it were, into God's new world uh, next week. We need something more than Noah. We need something more than God's commission. We need something more than God's law if we are to move forward. So that brings us to the second main point. How do, how do we move forward? Uh, you know, corresponding to those things that we've just seen, what we're going to see is that we move forward uh, by trusting Jesus, relying on the Spirit, and then filling the earth. Uh, first, trusting Jesus, right? A- after the flood, Noah, as a representative of a new creation, offered a sacrifice pleasing to God, which has stayed off another world-ending flood uh, for thousands of years now, by the way, right? Despite ongoing human sin, God made this promise in light of Noah's sacrifice, no more floods to destroy the earth. You see the same kind of story actually with Israel. Uh, God brings them out of Egypt. Almost immediately, they fall into egregious sin. They they build and worship a golden calf. God is ready to to wipe them out because they're a stiff-necked people. But their mediator, Moses, steps up and intercedes for them. You may remember this story when they're at Mount Sinai. And God again says he would not destroy them despite the fact that they are a stiff-necked people. You see, their condition hasn't changed, but God's attitude toward them has because of the work of their mediator. But neither Noah nor Moses dealt with the real guilt of sin because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Neither Noah nor Moses could hold off final judgment. And so Jesus comes as a true Israelite and a new Adam, the the one who comes to bring rest, a greater rest than Noah. Jesus comes as the covenant head of humanity to do for us what we have failed to do for ourselves, to, to offer himself in wholehearted obedience to the Father, and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin not to hold off temporal judgments for a time, but to satisfy God's justice altogether for all time for all who trust in him. And I want you to think about how important this is for for moving forward, right? After any kind of moral failure, after falling into sin, maybe even after God's fatherly loving discipline, how do you move forward in the Christian life? How How do you step out in obedience and walk in newness of life? Well, first, you must know that your sins are dealt with in Jesus, that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. You must know that God's wrath has been fully dealt with in the cross. You must know that that not just temporal judgment, but God's eternal judgment was dealt with in the cross. You must know that you're no longer a, a wretched object of God's wrath, but a beloved object of God's grace. Why is that so important? Well, how, how can you love your father if you're uncertain of his love for you? How can you step out to serve your father in love if you are constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering whether his judgment will strike? How can you step out to serve your father in love if you're constantly looking forward to the day when his patience for you will wear out and he will smite you where you stand? See, if you're just waiting for God to, to bring down the hammer, you will not be free to serve him in love. You will be looking over your shoulder. You will, you will begin to think of God as harsh and cruel. Uh, you'll, you'll spend your time trying to placate his justice with good works rather than serving him out of a good conscience. 
See, if you want to serve God in freedom, you need to know that, that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. And of course, if you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you can, you can do that right now in this moment. There's no secret formula. There are no magic words. And the New Testament says simply, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To repent means to see and own and confess your sin. And to believe means to trust in Jesus' work on your behalf. Now, if you know that your sins are forgiven already, but you struggle to believe it, then you are a normal human being. Uh, we are forgetful people, aren't we? Uh, we need to be reminded, reminded daily of God's grace. See, our sin looms large in our minds very often. We need to be reminded that God's grace is bigger. We get those reminders through God's Spirit as He uses God's Word and God's people in our lives. And so you read the Scriptures, praying for the Spirit to encourage you, and as you spend time with God's people, praying for God to work through them. Through those means, we are reminded afresh of grace and able to walk in light of it. And so how do we, how do we move forward? Uh, we move forward trusting Jesus, the, the mediator of a better covenant than Noah, the one who offered a better sacrifice than Noah, the one because of whom our sins are forgiven and dealt with once and for all. So we move forward trusting in the work of Jesus. Second, we move for, forward relying on the Spirit. You know, after human rebellion and the flood, to ensure that things didn't get immediately go right back to the way they were, God gave his law. Uh, God's law restrains sin in society. It helps mitigate some of the sin's effects in the world. But, but here's what the law does not do. It does not affect the heart. After the flood, God only restrained sin. He hems in the problem by the law. But if we are really going to step out in new obedience, we need more than the law. God's law is good, don't get me wrong, right? It teaches us right from wrong. It, it's a reflection of God's character. Therefore, it is unchanging because God is unchanging. But it cannot enable obedience. If we are going to step out in new obedience, we need more than the law. We need the Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus came to bring. Scripture tells us that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He always did what pleased the Father. And as a reward for his obedience, Jesus received the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, you may remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter said of Jesus in Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus was exalted to God's right hand, received the fullness of the Spirit, and then poured the Spirit out on his church. Jesus came to receive the Spirit in fullness and then pour out that same Spirit so that he, the Spirit, might dwell in us, so that we, God's people, might walk in newness of life. Again, let me just impress on you just how important this is. If you're anything like me, you've tried to obey God in a variety of areas of your life, and you've had spotty success. Maybe you have had some areas of improvement, but other sins just seem to keep hanging on. And at times, you begin to wonder if change is really possible. Will I ever be different in this life? Will I ever defeat this uh, entrenched sin? And then we turn to self-accusation. Well, it's all, it's all my fault. I must not be repenting rightly. Uh, maybe there's some formula for obedience, and I just haven't figured it out yet. We're looking for a new law, a new set of rules, a new set of principles that will enable us to obey. The truth is, if there is a, a, a quote, trick to obedience, it is this. You cannot obey in your own strength. Uh, you, you do not have in you, of yourself, what it takes to serve God. Uh, 
There is no rule, there are no principles, there is no law that can make change happen. That sounds pretty hopeless, but actually it doesn't leave us without hope. It allows us to place our hope where it rightly belongs, not in ourselves, but in God. Because Scripture tells us that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And that God works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And that we can then, by, when he pours out his spirit, we can begin to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's not really a trick here, but if there were a trick, it would be working hard, striving, struggling, trying, and coming to an end of yourself. Realizing you don't have it in you, and then casting yourself on the spirit of Jesus for hope and for help. And so we step out every day seeking to obey God, seeking to serve him, seeking to honor him, seeking to fight sin and avoid temptation and stand against the evil one. But we step out not relying on our own strength, but self-consciously and prayerfully relying on the power of the Spirit of Christ within us. And so how do we move forward? We move forward trusting in Jesus, the, the mediator of a better covenant, Uh, relying not on the law but on the Spirit to empower us to live the new life, and then third, filling the earth. If we're going to step out in obedience, we need to know what that obedience looks like. Uh, You can't replace sin with not sinning. Uh, you, you, You can't just leave a void in your life of activity, right? You have to replace sin with obedience, Often uh, when we become Christians, we focus on stopping specific sins. Uh, I need to give up pornography, or I need to stop lying, or I need to stop being so critical and mean, or whatever it is. And that's fine, but we need to understand uh, that God doesn't want us to just stop a few things. The totality of God's plan for your life is not stop doing stuff. God wants you to be taken up into his program for the whole earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants his image to fill the earth. God wants to be known in all creation. He wants his goodness, his truth, his beauty, his justice and mercy, his kindness and grace to fill every corner of the world. Now, we often limit God's program to evangelism. And, of course, evangelism is an important part of this, isn't it? People need to come to know Christ. They need to be renewed in God's image by his spirit from the inside out. But even evangelism is just one piece, one component of God's larger program. And the question for each one of us is, how is God calling me to be a part of his program to fill the earth with his image? There's the obvious, right? The obvious answer is have children. Uh, That's the most literal application of this command. You know, back in chapter 8, verse 17, God told the animals to be fruitful and multiply. And so this command, at its basic level, must include something that animals too can do, which would be procreate. That's what it means to be fruitful and multiply at its most basic level. But there's more to it for human beings because human beings are made in God's image. And that is what this, this whole section is about, right? The propagation of God's image and the protection of God's image from violence. And so we must be people who are radically oriented toward God's image, toward the, the propagation of, the flourishing of, the renewal of, the expression of God's image and glory in all the earth. And so, yes, at its most fundamental, filling the earth with God's image means having babies. But that's just one part. Again, one part means more than that. For people to exist, other things need to happen. Uh, We need food and shelter and clothing, which means we need things like business and industry. These things help propagate or help protect the image of God in the world. 
Uh, but there's still more, right? Because all of the, these things are necessary for human existence. But we want human flourishing as God's image, which means we need other things, things like education, for example, especially helping people to understand their calling as God's image. But then further education to help them live that out with their particular gifts and talents in the world. Education, of course, means books. Books means printers and editors and publishers and distributors, uh, even Amazon, right? Even Amazon delivery trucks, right? All of that is a part of allowing human beings to flourish as God's image in the world. Part of God's image is delighting in the things that he has made as he delights in them. Remember, in the beginning, what does God do when he looks at creation? He declares it good, even very good. He delights in the world that he made. Delighting in creation does include things like entertainment and recreation and songwriters and singers and actors and acrobats and Olympic athletes. Why? Because to, to display the glory of God. The glory of God who made all these things, who made us in his image and gave us gifts and abilities, which are a small reflection of his power and wisdom and kindness. And of course, as people are gathered together in societies, that means governments for the proper ordering of all things. And now, sure, you you could think about everything that I've just said and say, well, all of that could be done ignoring God, ignoring his image, ignoring his glory, ignoring him. And that's true. But as his people, the point is, we are called to do those things with our eyes on him. So uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or again, in Colossians 3.17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, we do all things in Christ's name all things for God's glory. We give thanks to the Father for all things through Jesus. As we fill the earth with the image of our Father, his goodness, his beauty, his truth in all the earth. As we live and breathe and act as his image bearers. As we seek to propagate and and promote and foster and nourish and encourage that image in others to the glory of our Father in heaven. Yes, we we are uh, broken and sinful people. But as we trust in Jesus' work, we know that the Father loves us. Despite our brokenness, despite our sin, the Father loves us in his Son. And as we rely on Jesus' spirit, we are renewed in the Father's image. And as we step out in obedience, we propagate the Father's image and display his glory in all the earth. Uh, Let's take a moment and pray that God would do just that through us, that he would give each of us wisdom to know our part in propagating his image in all the earth. I'll close this in just a minute. Let's pray. Father, do guide us and give us wisdom. Uh, Help us to know how we can serve you with our lives, how we can be a part of your program to fill the earth with your image to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.